Big thanks to Arno at ALM, almk9equipment.com. That's the letter K, the number nine. Hit Arno up at A-R-N-O at almsuit.com. First-time visitors to a site, use discount code WDRADIO to receive 10% off your new tug or suit. I want to give a huge thanks to Ryan and the guys over at Tripwire Ops. Go check out their class schedule and every amazing thing it is they have to offer on the World Wide Web at tripwireops.org. That's tripwireops.org. Yeah, I'm a crazy motherfucker walking up your street. Craziest fucker that you ever see. Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. All right, everybody, here we are, another episode of Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. Uh, This is a special request episode where we've had a lot of people ask Ted and I to do uh, a podcast with us where we talk about training and training scenarios and answer some questions. So over the past, I don't know, three or four days, on Facebook page, Working Dog Radio, and on our Instagram page, Working underscore Dog underscore Radio, we asked you, the listeners, to uh, provide us some questions. Uh, with me, as always, is uh, my partner, Ted Summers. Ted, how are you? Doing well, doing well. And we have a special guest, a, a contributing member to the podcast, Mike Ritland. Mike, thanks for coming on. Well, boy, I tell you what, I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Right. Uh, the funny thing is when we when we announced that we added Mike onto the uh, onto the podcast the questions started really pouring in um they're they're pretty wide and and varied in all aspects because because mike's involved in a lot of different things we have decided the questions we chose we're going to stick with the training and training scenario type stuff and pretty much based on law enforcement and military type dogs um there's a lot of other avenues that we'll go over in, in the future at, towards the end of this podcast on ways to get answers to some of the other pet dog questions, breeding questions, puppies, and things like that. So uh, with that, we're going to kick it off. Yep. So, um, you know, we're going to do uh, – Eric and I kind of scrolled through everything and kind of selected the ones that are, uh, you know, most relevant to kind of the, the, what Eric introduced here. The first question comes from canine underscore Mike. And uh, this is something that Eric and I talk about a lot and something I yell at my handlers about quite a bit. And he says, you know, do you run into issues with handlers just standing around and watching, uh, you know, not actively engaging in a fight with a dog or a decoy? And if so, how do you light a fire under, a fire under their ass to get involved? Could I could I maybe tackle this one and jump in? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this uh, actually really fucking simple, and uh, you know, because it's something that when I was out on the West Coast, we I wouldn't say we ran into it very often, uh, but there there was a really really easy fix for it, and uh, this is a this is a free tip, is that uh, if as the decoy, if you're standing there when you're battling out with the dog, and that handler is not. Um, We'll just call it playing an active role. I'll tell you, nothing will light a fire, <laughs> as they put it, under their ass more than to walk up to said handler and smack the fucking shit out of him. 
no. uh, literally take take the fight to the fucking handler and be and be serious about it. Like I'm not gonna say shit to him. I'm not gonna look at him. I'm not gonna tell him. I'm gonna say, all right, motherfucker, if you're if you're gonna stand there, I'm gonna I'm gonna come with my with my strong pimp hand and I'm gonna slap the fuck out of you and, and fight them. Like don't give them an opportunity to not fight you. You don't even have to say anything. Pick a fight with them. Uh, you know, because if that dog's on you and you go up there and grab that motherfucker and, and hip toss him or slap him. Uh, or whatever, it, like to the point where you piss them off. Like now it's game on, and and there is no explanation. Uh, not nothing will will solve that problem quicker than just going and doing that. That's just that's my take. Absolutely, Eric. Uh, uh yes, <laughs> I, I think is my answer to that. Yeah, Mike is. Um, you know, my guys know that uh, when we're training, that I do expect them to um, be an active participant in it. Uh, Big time. And I, I, my guys will tell you, I hold nothing back. I yell at them from when I'm not the decoy, when I'm watching the scenario, I get all over them. I have a tendency to throw shit and uh, yell a lot. And um, because this is, this, this is serious stuff. This is really serious stuff. And you have guys that have a thing where like, (laughs) it's just like with praise where they're afraid to, to praise in a high pitched voice because it sounds sissy-ish or whatever. That's unacceptable. And just like not getting in the mix with their dogs is unacceptable. I'm tired of putting out all the work that I do for you to stand there. And, uh, you know, so uh, so my guys know pretty good, pretty well how I react to that. Yeah. You know, when we have when we have handler schools, um, a lot of my handlers have what they call Tedisms, which is shit that I say to them over and over and over again. One of them that I'm always yelling at them during handler schools is like, you know, handling is not a spectator sport. And I don't think they really grasp it until they get into sort of the end of handler school or during in-service training. Uh, When I went up to that thing up in New York that we're going to do again this year, the uh, Dark Horse Canine deal, um, those guys, you know, uh, me and Ed Myers and a couple of other guys, and we were shooting handlers, we were tackling handlers in, in dark basements. And, you know, and I just got back from Florida last week doing some where, you know, the handlers came back from lunch and, you know, they were kind of told them, okay, you know, I want you to do exactly what you would actually do. So they came up and I had the dogs wrapped up in a dark attic and wrapped up. I mean, like dog jujitsu. And they were like, show me your hands. I'm like, "Mm, not today. And they all froze and sort of panicked when they were like, fuck, I've actually got to fight this guy with a dog attached to him. And it wasn't anything weird. Like I wasn't fighting back. I was just being extremely resistant. I was keeping my hands and my feet covered. I was doing everything I can. I was grabbing people's watches, grabbing people's hands, trying to roll over on them. And it freaks fucking people out. And, you know, and then you got tased. Well, yeah. (laughs) Well, then they all thought I was fucking lying to them. So they're like, you know, okay, so I know what you said, but what are you going to do? And I'm like, "Oh, oh, oh, yeah, okay, well, not today. So. You know, I mean, I yeah. think the I think the consensus to the to that answer is like you just the answer to that question consensus is just uh, <laughs> you just do the Fight shit him. that you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it, you know the the adage of train how you fight. Uh, you know that that works every way. You know, not just as a handler, not just as a dog, but as a decoy too. Is that uh, you know, if you've got a non-compliant asshole there, like be a non-compliant asshole. And, and I mean, put yourself in the handler's shoes. Like if you're going up and you're half-assing it and, and you, and you instruct the handler, Hey, come up and, uh, and, and fight with me a little bit. And he, and he walks up and he's just, you know, half-assing or whatever. I'll tell you right now, like 
imagine getting the fuck slapped out of you. Like, you're not just going to be like, oh, okay, well, yeah, that was cool. Like, you're going to be like, you motherfucker, you know, and, and you're going to get after it. Like, you're going to take it personal, and, and you should, uh, you know. But like I said, I mean, to me, you know, violence is a universal language. Uh, we understand that the dogs, under everybody understands it. Uh, and and if you if you enact uh, a high enough degree of it, you know they'll fucking understand it. And uh, and it just to me that there there's no no greater teacher than that in in that specific uh, specific instance. Yeah, absolutely. So before we go to question number two, if you hear this sound in your <laughs> microphone, I apologize. That is my Captain Morgan and ginger ale and ice. Um, it, it's right next to the microphone. So. Jesus, it's 9 a.m. What? Right. It's 9 rough, it's 9 rough morning already, huh? What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, speaking of my second question. So we have two questions, um, one from K9 Nero um, and one from Tar Heel K9, which is Jerry Bradshaw. So they're kind of the same question. The first one is, you know, working on uh, – he asked a, a fairly long question about working on grips and equipment fixation. And then Bradshaw goes on to ask, you know, given a percentage of equipment, like if we're get, assigning, you know, 10% here, 20%, whatever, blah, 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 blah. For scenario training, once a team is certified, which is a fairly large caveat, uh, for patrol, how would you go and break it down for suit or sleeve, hidden equipment, uh, you know, muzzle work and civil work with no grip? And what considerations goes into those choices? So it's kind of a as a very broad question, sort of dealing I mean, specifically with equipment and dog engagement and everything else. Yeah, I mean it's kind of a I mean it's a several part question that that ultimately is is more like a, a two hour conversation with right. any three of us assholes sitting around. But <laughs> but uh, you know my I, I guess I mean I'll, I'll tackle it again if if you guys want the. Um, you know, to me, there, there's, there's, uh, and I, I apologize that probably most of my answers are going to start out with, well, fuck, it depends. Uh, but uh, most, in most cases, it does. In this case, I, I, I would look at it kind of as a, as a two, two-way choice, or, or you're at a fork in the road, and, and one of the, the forks, uh, or one of the, the roads rather that you can take, is a dog that I would say is not that dog. Uh, you know, one in, in terms of passing the selection test, which, you know, the reality of it is that, is that there's a number of them out there. Because I, I do truly believe that if your selection uh, process and criteria are are high enough and such that you uh, do certain things to uh, to that dog to, uh, you know, to engage or, or receive a genetic response, that, that there really isn't a, a problem with uh, specifically equipment fixation, but uh, you know the, the grip and, and technique and stuff uh, I think is is half genetic, half foundation training and, and technique. But but I really do truly believe that uh, that the selection of the of the dog itself is 95% of whether or not you have any issues with with equipment fixation. And, and just very simply, it's it's that you know if if that dog, I mean the the process that I use, I'm not saying it's necessarily perfect. It works for me very well but um is that you know if, if i put a dog through my what i call my five five stage process if you will uh, specifically the, the fifth category of, of testing a dog's natural forward aggression towards towards a man that's that's predatorial and combative in nature 
then then you don't have that problem. That that dog genetically is the type of dog that will go fucking bite somebody, you know, whether they're standing there with anything or not. And I test that right out of the gate. Now, I'm also not naive to the fact that there's a number of dogs out there that won't pass that test. That you can still do some uh, a lot of different different training techniques and exercises and conditioning uh, to get them to engage uh, and still be uh, mostly successful. I, I would, um, I guess, come to the come to the conclusion or realization that uh, you know if if they have that in them uh, or if they don't have that in them, that it can't be taught. You know, you can you can make accommodations for for some of them. Uh, and again, to me, ultimately, if you run into that guy that's physically capable, that's not scared and intent on hurting that dog, that dog better pass that fucking test or he's in trouble. You know, um, you can for sure get dogs to go and bite people as long as they're not combative and sitting there really taking it to them. Uh, and you can condition a dog just like with a person. You can condition them to, to go through the rigors of war and, and certain things by by, you know, deconditioning certain responses in them uh, by by some of the training techniques. But ultimately, if you're faced with that, that fight or flight, should or get off the pot mentality type of situation where, you know, you got the twice convicted felon that's hopped up on something and, and is a fucking pipe hitter, you know, you, you better have brought, your dog better have brought a fucking lunch to, to deal with that guy. Having said that, um, you know, given the fact that, that there's a varying number of degrees uh, with with all of those components or, or levels of magnitude, one of the analogies I like to use is, is kind of the slider of, a, of an equalizer, uh, like a stereo, like an, on an amp, um, you know, and, and you're from zero to 10, you're kind of moving those sliders around in those five categories as to what, what level of magnitude you need that strength and character to be at in that dog, given the situation and those factors that are going to going to uh you know delve into that are you know what's the handler's experience what's the operational environment you know what's the training cadre if there is some what are the levels of, of competency in terms of the decoys that are going to be working the dog you know all those are going to play a factor into into what dog you're going to pair with with that unit with that handler department etc but uh so you know to me it, it, you kind of have to say well is is it the dog that goes down the the right side of the path where that motherfucker is going to bite anybody um and and he's nasty about it and and if that's the case, then, you know, you, you don't really have that problem, or at least in my experience, you don't. That's why I test the way that I do, because I, I don't want to have to fuck with trying to condition dogs to, to go in and engage somebody if they don't inherently want to do that. And, and I do, I use the word inherent um, on purpose and that I, I do strongly believe that's a genetic component that can't be taught. It's 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 there or it's not. Um, when it really, really matters. And in other words, somebody's sitting there really taking it to the dog. But if you're and in the in the scope of this question, if you're going down the left side of the road uh, where maybe it's not falling into that category, now you're having to use these deconditioning techniques uh, and or conditioning techniques to decondition certain uh, responses that you're not looking for, i.e., not engaging or uh, not having the the right grip or or whatever. Then I think it's it's just like with anything else is is each dog is going <clears> to <throat> determine and drive. Uh, a different collective series of these uh, of these different things, uh, and I look at it like a step by step process, just like every other aspect of training. And that, uh, you know, number one is I want the dog comfortable, uh, and then I want to work on just the grip. And so generally, I'll use a good wedge or sleeve to to you know formulate that. Uh, the way that I want it, and I know he can do it uh, first and, and reinforce it just like with anything else of, of of using positive experiences when he's given me what I want and, and things of that nature and really building that foundational grip. Once that's there, 
then I'll start to challenge it with uh, uh, working into and going into sleeve work and, and uh, or, I'm sorry, suit work uh, and, and making him find me the man in the suit uh, as opposed to slipping it uh, or, or pulling and tugging. I, you know, I, I want to do doing a similar technique of, of, of uh, setting the environment up, manipulating it to get the most out of the dog uh, in terms of him trying to find me in the suit and, and biting, you know, not not material, but finding the fucking meat and bone and, and trying to punish it and being rewarded for that. Um, then I'll go into uh, the quote unquote more civil thing. And, and my my take, frankly, is just I would say from my experience of, of doing hits and, and some of the other conferences uh, and teaching over the last several years, um, is that I, I think I kind of fall outside what I would call the normal paradigm uh, in the industry in terms of the way I've used quote unquote civil civil work with muzzles and hidden sleeves. I'm, I'm not a big fan of either one of them. Um, and I know that that, that, uh, opinion is, is less than popular, uh, you know, in, in the mainstream dog industry, but my, my take very simply on it is that I think it's a contextual association, just like a sleeve or a suit or anything else. Uh, and that, you know, in my experience tells me that, uh, that you can teach a dog that has absolutely no realness or, or what we would consider civil aggression to, to look like a motherfucker in a muzzle, uh, you know, that, that really isn't, um, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a conditioned response just like with anything. But, uh, and one of the things that I, at least from my experience, when I see a lot, a lot of people that do a lot of muzzle work is I don't see a lot of that, that decoy really taking it to them. They're just doing, you know, super, super high prey movement type of associations that it's making it a fun game for the dog and whatever. And some of them take it serious. Some of them don't, but I generally don't see a lot of really getting into the dog and, and fucking with him and, and, and trying to, you know, make him understand that it's not a fucking game. And, and, you know, my take on it very simply is, is the dog that's not the right dog, all the muzzle work in the world, isn't going to turn him into it in my opinion. And no, on the transfers, exactly. you know, you know the 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 right dog. Uh, all the muzzle work in the world isn't going to make him any fucking better, and just makes him a pain in the ass when he's hurt or going to the vet or whatever, because now he's ready to fucking kill everybody. Um, and same thing with the. And I'll wrap it up as to not, uh, you know, hog all the fucking time here. But in terms of the hidden sleeves, is that I see that a lot in in room work. Is that you know we're think of it from a from a, a olfactory standpoint. Is that uh, you know people will will. Uh, be really, really anal retentive about odor contamination and detection and, and take tracking as an example. You know, you're not going to lay a track with a hidden sleeve. Why? Because that dog will fucking smell it, right? So throwing a sweatshirt over it and being three rooms deep in a closet doesn't make that odor any less available. You, you can rest the fuck assured that dog smells whatever that material is that the second he crosses the first threshold into the first room, if not before then. Uh, so you're not fooling anybody. Uh, you know, if they can find a, a roach clip and a fucking ashtray, uh, rest assured, uh, a sweatshirt over it isn't, isn't fooling them. Um, you know, and so I, I just, I look at it again, I would say probably very differently than most people, but, um, and that's a, a, a super long tail on that kite of, of that question, but that's, uh, that's how I look at all that, 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 that breakdown. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. <clears throat> um, okay. Yeah. Again, yes is my answer. No, just kidding. Now, no, the way I do it, the way I do it is if I get a dog, um, you know, I don't, I don't really get dogs. I don't select dogs that aren't already on a sleeve for sure. Uh, suit preferably, of course, but sleeve for sure. Once I have a, the dog with a pretty decent grip and we start training, 
And um, I might use a sleeve on when I'm introducing building searches to a dog. Sometimes I use a suit. Sometimes I use a sleeve just so, you know, when they, they get in there, they can I can get them to slip it in a couple times. And once we start getting going, though, and I have a dog that's hitting a sleeve or hitting a suit, they'll, with, with the exception of dem- doing demos, they will never see a sleeve again. Um, that, that part's done. Um, everything I do then I, I am, if you know, Jerry, uh, asked for percentages, I'm still probably all the way through about, uh, 75%, 80% in a suit. The rest split between muzzle and hidden sleeve. Um, because I work an obsessive amount of still person decoy work. Um, I like, I wear, I have guys wear suits, because I, I call it the Blair Witch Project, where I like to put them in the corner, f- staring at the corner and not moving. Oh, yeah. And, Good Lord. You know, that, that fucks with people, yeah. So the dog comes in, and he, he takes what is – if it's going to be your ass or your thigh or your calf or your back or your whatever, you got to have a suit on. Um, now, I, I definitely use hidden sleeves on things where we can control it to where the dog is not going to take a leg. Um I used to do way more muzzle work than I do now um, for kind of some of the same reason. One of the one of the main reasons why I quit, I haven't done as much muzzle work lately is I can't do it all. So when I try to get guys to help me do muzzle work, decoy stuff, they're terrible. And um, yeah. and I see guys still pulling on muzzles like I'm like, you're going to pull his muzzle off and get eaten. And um, I they'll do, only like do it, they'll only do it once. Right. I, I do like it. Um, there's a lot of scenarios I'll do I'll, that I'll do with a suit or sleep. I'll, I'll use a muzzle, like some vehicle extraction stuff, diving through the window and getting them to fight in there and things like that. But um, I'm still I'm still a big believer in mostly suit. Um, and yeah. and the results I get on the road uh, to me prove it. Yeah. And, you know, you know, to kind of echo some of the stuff that that Mike said and what you said and some of the stuff that Jerry has either said to me in either private or public. I don't, he said to me over time, you know, I mean, muzzle is nothing. It is an equipment. Every time we've got a dog out, whether they've got a pinch collar on a flat collar, a harness, a muzzle, whatever it is, they've still got equipment on affecting their, affecting the outcome. And they understand that when they've got a muzzle on, they're not going to be able to bite, you know, and in terms of equipment, Scott and I try and use as little or as thin of equipment as possible. My suits are super thin. Our hidden equipment is super thin. And, you know, I start puppies out on, like, Carhartt jackets and, like, super, super thin stuff until I literally can't stand it anymore. And then they move on to the big boy suit. And from there, you know, we're working on – and this is kind of something that can I Nero ask. Like, you know, I obsessively work on grips and grips and grips and grips and grips for – for liability reasons and for several other reasons, but it, it to me is much easier to manipulate all that stuff until um, they actually have a street bite or they're deployable or whatever it is. And in terms of hard sleeves, you know, Oklahoma in particular doesn't have a, a patrol certification, so you know we don't have to worry about a lot of the stuff that other guys worry about. So when we do verbal outs when we do like i have dogs in arkansas when when we work those dogs they work on a hard trial sleeve you know it's all sterile it's all super clean it's all super easy you know the decoy stops moving and i'll fuck with them a whole lot we work on their verbal outs and everything else um so percentages you know i mean we use 
hidden sleeve and equipment or like super thin suits most of the time, almost all the time. Um, I'll be a hundred percent honest when we use muzzles, it is with a dog that has already had street bites and it's 175 degrees outside and I've got 12 other dogs and I don't want to get in a fucking suit. I don't, I know that motherfucker will bite me. I don't need to let him bite me. I don't need to put the fucking suit on and let him bite me again. And, you know, we've had several dogs come through for recertification or dogs that are already on the street that have bites. I don't need that dog to prove to me that. And on top of that, they'll bite arms, legs, calves, whatever you stick out there, they're going to fucking bite. And I'm not worried about it. And when I have a ton of handlers in and it's really hot and we're pressed for time and, you know, you've got nine dogs there out of 12 that are super, 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 you know, already proven street dogs. I'll put them in a muzzle and I'll let them come in and freaking nuke me in a muzzle and that I don't have to worry about. And then I can put the, put the suit on and I can dedicate time to the dogs that haven't. And uh, kind of something you both mentioned too with muzzle work. Muzzle work is kind of one of those deals. It is the most advanced and hardest part of what we do as decoys, especially if the dog isn't on a leash. The dog is not getting opposition from a handler. The dog is not getting opposition from a decoy other than us pushing on him. And you're right. Like, dudes just stand there and let dogs nuke him and whatever else. There's a video that's gone around of me getting fucking blasted in the head by Stacy Beller's dog. And it looks like I get passed out. But the dog was sent, and this is one of Jerry's exercises. Uh, he called it seven or eight or however long. It was a long fucking time. But the dog was sent to a passive decoy and had to stay engaged and continuing to try and bite with a muzzle on on a passive decoy that's laying flat down on the face down on the grass for eight seconds. And it's an extremely difficult exercise. But as a decoy, you know, us dealing with dogs and muzzles and creating opposition and creating the things that we can't do with grip. Like if a dog digs in on a grip, all we have to do is, you know, we create prey. Well, creating prey in a muzzle is extremely difficult. So... You know, I will only use muzzles with um, with experienced dogs, and I'll say it now kind of like, you know, Mike did. I, I'm, you know, if a dog fucking sucks, there's not no amount of muzzle work in the world that's going to make that dog bite somebody. And, you know, you're hoping that frustration is going to piss them off enough. And, you know, just like you said, you know, they could, you know, we ask them to smell six grams of cocaine, and they're not going to smell a hidden sleeve. Well, they're also smart enough to realize that they've got a muzzle on and they're not going to be able to bite us. I've seen some freaking blue healers that will tear you up in a muzzle that yeah. won't bite if they had to. And, but they sure as shit look like when they yeah. got a muzzle on. So, you know, and yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess the, oh, go ahead. No, no. Yeah. I mean, that was it. But I guess the, you know, the thing I, I try to look at with, with all training is that, you know, there's a couple, couple of questions I always try to ask myself is number one, why, why am I doing it? Uh, you know, and, and I'd rather not do something at all than to do something that, that to me is either going to put a, a bad, uh, association in a dog's mind. And, and by bad, I mean something that I don't want. Uh, and that's one of the biggest problems. And half of it's from, you know, every, almost every warrior dog that we get in here is a motherfucker putting a, putting a, a muzzle on them. You know, you take them to the vet, they're hurt, whatever. This the second you put a muzzle on them and now they're like, all right, where's that motherfucker? You know, and, and they become a pain in the ass. But the, you know, just like, like what you said is that they're, they're also not stupid and knowing that they can't bite you. And so no different than say MMA training, you know, is that, you know, is there a place for, for pads and for speed bags and for, uh, for punching bags and, and other different, you know, targeting or cross training type of type of pieces of gear. Yeah. But 95% of, 
of what you're doing should be fucking sparring or rolling if it's jujitsu. And, and that's what a suit is, you know? And so to me, like, I would rather, you know, put a dog on a fucking treadmill or work conditioning, you know, using a treadmill with wind sprints and bite wedges to, to build their fucking cardiovascular uh, processes to, to accommodate the heat and spend that time training that than to, to do an exercise that's going to, you know, condition them to be a fucking an asshole and a muzzle uh, where, where if they're already a proven street dog anyway, like I'd rather just put them in better shape and, and do wind sprints with bite wedges and, and give them that satisfaction of actually getting their mouth on something and, and teaching them how to breathe out the side of their mouth. And, you know, when, when they're hot and, and giving them those experiences, if it, if it's super hot, you know, um, as opposed to fucking with a muzzle. I mean, obviously <clears throat> there's a lot of different ways to skin, skin that cat as they say but uh like i said i just always ask myself why are we doing what we're doing and and given what our 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 final goal is that we're trying to accomplish how how can we best work backwards from that and and build up to that process and and uh you know that's that's kind of how i always try to look at it anyway but right right but uh well the second part of that the second part of that question is and we'll touch on it real quick is um equipment equipment fixation and drills that you use like ted what what are something you guys use uh to either proof off of the equipment or help or show the handlers some things uh we do what scott and i call equipment fixation drills or shedding drills um we do the equipment fixation drill where uh i will be in a hidden sleeve and then I'll walk up with a trial sleeve and stuff it in their mouth with a dog on a back tie. And as soon as I stuff it in their mouth, I go passive and stick my hidden sleeve arm out and wait for the dog to hopefully a spit it and then engage, um, which kind of moves towards the shedding drill, which is where we're actively shedding equipment. There's a very famous, um, case from, I, I think it's Phoenix, big old black dude, um, who supposedly had a kid in a car, a gun, and his hand stuffed in a backpack. And um, SWAT team, you know, flashbangs the dude out standing outside in the highway, sends the dog, dog bites this guy, he feeds it to him, but as soon as the dog bites, the whole thing comes off his arm. It's the backpack filled with newspaper and everything else. And dog, before he hits the ground, spits it and immediately re-engages on the dog guy's leg as he's diving back into the car. So I'll do several things where you know, which moves into a fend off where I'm stuffing stuff in a dog's mouth, whether it be like a sofa pillow or a couch cushion or a bed pillow or in harder versions of it, I'll take an actual hard sleeve and I, you know, during a building search off lead, a dog will come ripping down a hallway and I'll just stick when I'm in a suit and I'll stick it in his mouth and walk off and see if he'll spit it out and bite me. So, you know, we teach them very quickly that, you know, and I hate to put it this way, but we basically play a giant game, a two ball, where as soon as they stuff something in their mouth, if they're not getting some sort of reaction back, they immediately spit it and come bite me. And, you know, I have seen a ton of dogs that are trained to be really good for certification, and you stuff a sleeve in their mouth and they're done. They're like, hey, that's good. Let's go. Fuck it. I'm out. And... So, yeah, we call them human orientation drills and shedding drills, and I do a lot of them. And, you know, we – and actually several years ago, that's kind of how I made my name here locally is fixing a lot of dogs that have uh, – that had equipment fixation problems. And it's something that we do. I mean, I we did some – or we're going to do some tomorrow actually. So, <laughs> yeah. 
So you made a name for yourself stuffing things in dogs' mouths. Is that right, Ted? Yeah, sort of. <laughs> All right. This is, I'm just trying to clarify. Exactly. I mean, there's worse things to be known for. Not not many, but there are some. Right, right exactly. Um, That's good stuff. <laughs> so question three. This one should be interesting. Uh, CPD underscore can underscore ace asked, you know, Thoughts on long line usage during building searches and scenarios. I have some pretty good anecdotes on this one, but I want to hear what you guys have to say first. So me, I'm a, um, I'm obsessed with long lines. Um, I, I have my guys use them all the time. And it's funny because they'll be like, uh, I'm like, all right, you need a long line for this. And, and they're always like, ugh. And uh, I, you know, one of the best, and I don't know if I've ever said it on the podcast, I can't remember, but one of the best lines in any movie ever that I use all the time is, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. If you can work a 30 or 40 or 50 foot long line, you can work anything. So during training, I have them do long lines for two purposes. One, because um, it makes them better handlers. And two, because they do are practical. There are times, you know, I, I teach a lot of, uh, of suspect fishing where we send the dog in on a long line under, under porches and in tight spaces and things like that and then rip the guy out using the long line. Why, why, why do a six-foot leash when the guy can come out of hiding with the dog, even with the dog on and still shoot you? So um, I'm a huge believer in long lines, especially for the tactical guys. If you're wanting to do, you know, tactical moving where you're either, you know, maybe sweeping the front room and then taking that ground and then moving on to the, to the neck, the kitchen, sweeping that, that you, you, I mean, you can do it off lead too, but it's a good idea to do an on lead. The other part about that is for real life scenarios is tons of handlers can tell you they go to calls where an alarm call where they get there and they find an open door, but it's not broken into it's an open, it's an unlocked door, which somebody could have went in and set the alarm off. Those are scenarios I always tell my guys. This is where you should be on a long line. Um, just like the guy in San Diego that got himself in a yeah, exactly. hot water for you know searching off lead with that. Now, right or wrong, I don't know. But um, those scenarios, I, I always have the guys use a long lead. You should definitely um, get really super proficient with it. Yeah, I mean, my take is, uh, is again, is, is the, it depends, but for sure, I, I agree 100% is that they, A, have to be uh, able and used to doing it, and, you've, and you know, you've got to be proficient, obviously, uh, but it, just like you said, it's one of those things where the, the situation as to what you're encountering is just like with most aspects of how, you, how and or if you're going to deploy that dog are going to determine uh, how and, and if you do it, you know, so... Um, you know, from a from a dynamic standpoint, I think, you know, depending on if, if it's a, a hasty type of environment where you're trying to be lightning fucking fast, yeah, a, a flex lead or long line is, is probably not going to be your best option. You're going to want to want to go dynamic and haul ass and flood whatever target or building or warehouse or what have you. Uh, but in situations where it's more static or more, uh, you know, in the military, what we'd call SSE or sensitive site exploitation, where you're you're more methodical and taking your time, and uh, more thorough. Then, yeah, you're going to be going to be doing that. You know, to me, a good example is you know you've got somebody 
that that's fled through a building and you want to send them, then yeah, you're, you're going to just fucking send the dog and, and depending on who you have with you and, and whether or not there's a, a SWAT type contingent is going to dictate some of that. But, uh, versus like your example of coming into, you know, a, a door that's kicked in and, uh, or if you know, somebody's hiding in a certain area and you want to be more methodical then yeah, I would probably use a long line, especially if there's, uh, you know, any, any incidences or concerns of blue on blue where there's other, com- uh, counterparts of yours moving from the other end of the target forward or whatever. And, and, uh, you know, mitigating any type of, uh, accidental bites or shit like that. But, uh, so yeah, I think, uh, let's say we're pretty, pretty in line with that stuff. Yeah, one thing that we're always preaching to our guys is control, control, control everything from from bite work to detection to whatever it is. Anybody that ever asks, you are always under control. You don't ever tell people your dog bites wherever they feel like, whatever else. And the long line is something um, that, you know, like you said, it depends. And in certain situations, you know, no matter what, the dog by and large is a tool in he is there as a detection tool. So for instance, this thing I just got into doing in Florida, you know, dogs use four senses to do building searches or do area searches at sight, sound, smell, and vibration, or, you know, something that creates some kind of feeling. So, you know, when you're going into an environment that has lots of open rooms, lots of open spaces, whatever else, we teach our guys to send the dog in 10, 15 feet down them on a long line. And they just sit there. They may sit there for six, eight, 10 minutes and they're waiting for the dog to either catch odor, to catch visual, or to catch uh, to catch sound. And once they do, they can narrow it down. In a SWAT-type operation, they're narrowing down portions of the building where there should or is or is not people or whatever else. But the point is the handler always has control and is able to, you know, is able to manipulate somebody once the dog is on a bite. We had a deal – last weekend on this uh, at this course where we had two people in a building and for whatever reason for for the worst when you're in an environment where you've got not necessarily SWAT guys but you know people that are uh you know like normal patrol guys or whatever else and a dog's on a grip the initial reaction is to run to the dog and they leave all tactics out the, at the door. They leave everything behind, and they run. They're like, oh, fuck, the dog's on a grip. They must be okay. And, you know, um, it was me and Carlos. And Carlos and I set this up with Jay where we were making the handlers make mistakes, running past doors they hadn't cleared and everything else, and the, the dog's – we're going to the closest guy, and as the, somebody was on a grip, either I would come up or Carlos would come up, on a, come up to sort of sabotage the team or split the team apart from the dog. And ultimately what you end up finding out is that a long line, if you don't have a foothold in the room, you can manipulate somebody out of hiding without having to expose yourself, whereas with a dog that's not, I mean, your really only option is A, go get him, or B, hopefully you can verbally out him. And just have them come back to you and you're like, okay, well, you know, I found one person and I may have somebody else in here, may not. And so, like you said, I think it depends. Um, I'm a big fan of them for um, vehicle extractions. If the dog's not having to go way deep into the car, like if you just got somebody that's just in there, I already got the door open. And rather than have officers fucking run up because they would have already done it if they could. And they just send the dog up in a long line and yank the whole shit show out of the car and then jump on them. No big deal. They can see everything, see all hands, feet, face, whatever else. And it's a way to multiply the dog's force to 
manipulate somebody that's being bit into an open area where it's safer to interact with them rather than having to expose yourself or expose the team to areas. Now, that being said, there are times where off-lead is like if you're doing a super gnarly, you know, area search and it's super undergrown or overgrown or everything else. I mean, you know, shit happens where the leash is going to get hung up. But if you can potentially do it where the leash is not going to get hung up and you can make good decisions – with leash fishing, then yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all about them for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like with anything, there's no reason to take a tool off the table and, and uh, there's always specific uses for it, but uh, for sure that should be an integral piece of gear for, for any, any and every handler in my book. I want to take a second to talk about equipment selection for patrol work. One of the most important aspects of teaching and maintaining patrol functions is your equipment. Proper equipment selection and fit makes all the difference in the world when it comes to creating and maintaining patrol and sport dogs. This episode is possible in part with support from Arno at ALM Suits. Because of the importance of this equipment, I use ALM Suits exclusively. I've owned one for about five years and use it almost daily at the kennel and have caught thousands of dogs and tens of thousands of bites. Arno was able to make a great fitting suit for my lanky ass, and I couldn't be happier with it. Arno can take your measurements and make you a suit that would make Jacob Davis happy. Who's <laughs> going to Google that to get the joke? Arno uses top quality materials and handmakes each and everything he does in his shop in Vegas. Between the top-notch materials and the handmade aspect, you're getting some of the best bite equipment in the world from ALM. The suits come in a full range of weights, from training weight to comp weight, which is what I use because I'm not a pussy and you shouldn't be either. He offers some Kevlar inserts to make the thinner suits a little safer and more comfortable, plus they keep your tattoo artist happy. He makes a full range of toys and reward tugs also. Be sure to hit him up at alnk9equipment.com. That's the letter K, the number 9, or Arno, A-R-N-O, at ALMSuits.com. Be sure to use the discount code WDRADIO for 10% off your first order. Tell him you heard it here. Now go get bit. Tripwire Operations Group. We're first responders dedicated to first responders. We believe the most highly trained create a safer America. We prepare military and first responders to protect our country by providing products, training, services, and relationships that together no one else provides. Tripwire provides virtually every type of explosive product currently manufactured. We also produce our very own binary explosive, TexPack. Tripwire provides military and law enforcement training, consulting, canine advanced training, and firearm sales and training. Folks, Ryan and the boys over at Tripwire are true badasses in the industry. Go check them out at www.tripwireops.org. That's tripwireops.org. So the next one kind of creates some sort of, uh, oh man, I don't know how to best put this, creates a lot of uh, contention in general. Canine Ronius says, you know, what are your thoughts on how you end a track during training? With a decoy bite, tug reward, track in a muzzle with a fight after, always end with a decoy, never end with a decoy, so that the dog is visible and just follows their nose. So how do we do that and more often than not what do you use well i train um a lot, let me grab it first mike i train a lot of you know we do a, a lot of tracking and um my guys the guys in my agency um i are, you'd be hard the six guys that i have that work the road with dual purpose dogs you'd be hard pressed to find a unit that size 
or anywhere near there that has as many apprehensions from tracks as we do. My guys on midnights at times, it's three or four a week and all from tracks. Sometimes um, we've had a couple guys have had uh, multiple tracks throughout a year that have three or four apprehensions in the same track, um, depending on how many people bailed from a car or from a burglary or whatever. And I do a bus. Right. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) A short one. Um, I do 90, 99% of my tracks at training end in a toy reward. Um, I only do one or two, maybe, yeah, maybe two or three bite tracks a year, really not that much in training. And it, it, it doesn't matter. It equate it. The dogs still bite the guy at the end of the track. And all my dogs are nose down and they track nose down. And I think it's because of, um, you know, getting either food or toy roar at the end. Um, I've had guys that switched training groups and came to me that their old training group, every 100% of their tracks ended in a bite and their dogs are horrendous, horrendous tracking dogs. And um, that's just the way I see it anyways. What uh, I guess the, the question I would have in terms of the the empirical data behind that is that if you if you contrast that with the caliber or quality of the the genetic component of the dog, um, are you seeing a a huge disparity in the the caliber or, or quality of the dog that's that's atrocious tracking, or, or are you seeing any correlation between those two things, or or do you think it's more of a training training piece? Um, no, there's, I mean, there's obviously definitely some genetics in there. I see, you know, like, um, you know, my, my last dog that I worked, um, actually I'm babysitting him right now. Um, he, uh, he was not a great tracking dog. He was, a, he was a Mao and, um, you know, he did a lot of sight stuff and that, you know, he, he wasn't a great track. He had one of the best tracks I've ever had as a, in, in a career though. We did a, a two hour old mile track. And found and it was a uh, two lovebirds that left a suicide note, and we found them. And it was 85 degrees. I couldn't believe it that we actually found. Them. And there was some wind and things involved in there too. That dog never once did I ever give him a bite on a track, um, because yeah. I I had to do. I mean, I try. I'm I'm I had pieces of raw liver on a string dragging behind me. Everything to get his nose. Every little trick I could think of to get his nose on the ground, and it was so so. Um, but we have dogs that, uh, will track so well, even with the decoy out, they'll track right to the guy's feet and like run into them and they're like, Oh, oh," and look up and then they bite. Um, so it's definitely is a genetic thing, but I think the, the medium dogs is where the, the toy or bite really plays a difference. You know, the dogs that are somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And and so you'll notice a huge disparity between, uh, if if you vary it to where you know you're using an actual bite with a decoy far less that 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 actually improves the dog's ability to track more focused and and better uh, transversely from what you saw you know by by having a, a decoy present most of the time. That, that's the way I that's <clears throat> that's been my experience been at experience. it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my I guess my my take my take on it overall is is I like to do you know the, it's to keep them guessing, so it's it's in essence similar, uh, but I'd say my the disparity in terms of uh, you know percentages it, it's more well rounded. 
um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a, a tug or a ball or a, a decoy at the end, et cetera, is that the dog never really fucking knows. And that's whether they can see him or not. That's, you know, the, the conditions, the operational environment is that, uh, you know, almost the, you know, not almost the, you know, the variable reward system mentality of, of, you know, it, it's the lottery, well, the lottery mentality. Now I will caveat that with, Yes, if if a dog is becoming so so driven and wound up and frantic, then then I'm going to adjust accordingly. No different than if it's on the other end of the spectrum, I'm going to adjust the other way accordingly. But uh, but but by and large, I like to look at it as you know, what's the dog going to be doing? If he's going to be biting, I, I prefer to do that more, so that at the end of it, it's it's you know again just as realistic as, as I can make it in terms of them getting a good fight and, and whatever one. Uh, one project I did uh, as a, it was as much of an experiment as anything else was was using uh, a dog to be a we'll call it a, a handler protection slash search and rescue dog. It was uh, you know for a federal group that uh, that was was trying to incorporate that, and you know everybody said well you can't really do that, and, and I uh, you know spent a, a few months working a dog to to get him to that that level and ended up using uh, a, a fucking pretty thick bite wedge on the handler uh, and taught it the same way I would detection wise in terms of dog independent of the handler just going out and searching for odor and when he finds it using using a marker to release the dog from that final and I used 55 gallon drums with holes drilled in them uh, a series of them and then put somebody in one of them and, and used it like a big detection um uh, scenario at first to teach that you can't see him, you can't get to him, whatever you just you indicate on him and come right back to the handler. The key with that was is using the right dog that didn't have a bunch of contextual bullshit with it, uh, and then transversely is is uh, you know being very very consistent and having a lot of repetitions of him not even physically being able to get to the decoy and he always came back to the handler and got a, a really vigorous, you know, three or four minute bite wedge session that, that satisfied that, that same thing. It, uh, it took a, a, a bit of a balancing act, uh, but it did work. And to me, my, my point of bringing that up is that I think depending on what, what the dog is, is a hardwired with B, what his, his experiences are that, that have conditioned him to either anticipate things or, or not, um, coupled with you know you making those micro adjustments is that is that it's a it's a contingent of of all of those things and you're and you're kind of always making uh, those adjustments based on what your dog is doing and if they're steering one direction or not and, and then using the the tools at your disposal to to correct them. Yeah, you know we uh, have a kind of an, an amalgamation of of both of those. So <clears throat> Scott is a my partner is a f- fantastic tracking trainer that dude has more ways to teach a dog track than i even even thought about i think so you know we teach it in like uh like three phases so basically the dogs are taught to track um they're not necessarily taught to footstep track but they are taught to track and trail and we'll use somebody hiding out there that's not necessarily a bite that'll have a ball the dog is then taught to uh we did this exercise and it's an important exercise that I do a lot in these high risk deployment things where you're not necessarily tracking, but you're just kind of out looking for somebody and the dog creeps up and smells human odor. And all of a sudden they start to alert. 
So we teach the proximity alert separate from the final indication of the end of the track. And we teach the handlers, like, this is what a proximity alert looks like, and this is how the dog acts, and this is what it is, and this is all this other, everything happens. So I think you'll hear a lot of guys will say, oh, you know, you, you can't do a track with a ball at the end because you can't get a proximity alert, and we train it separately. Not every track is going to end in a proximity alert. I, you know, I mean, there are times where people rob fucking grocery stores or rob convenience stores and run off, and they got some fucking shithead that's going to pick them up across the street after they run through it, and they'll end the track end. So you'll never get a proximity alert. And you're running around out in the woods looking for somebody that's not even going to be there. And the third exercise is, you know, I mean, if you get to the point where the dog is supposed to bite, by the time you get a proximity alert and you've given the dog and somebody say, you know, show me your hands, you've gone through the whole thing. By the time that you say Stalin, it's a foregone conclusion. So, you know, when I think a lot of guys say, oh, we're going to train and we're going to train a track that has to end in a bite that has to end with somebody there because not all I don't I mean not all tracks end with somebody there you don't always find somebody at the end of it I mean people move conditions change you know they get picked up whatever it is so Scott is really good Scott and I are, are really good about breaking it down into separate phases so tracking is a separate discipline from proximity alerts and um, you know and when we were in Florida last week we did a deal where the dog wasn't taught to track they just thought they were out going to the bathroom and literally the handler has him on a long, long line knowing that there's somebody out there. And we walk out, and Carlos is laying out in the fucking grass. And, you know, some dogs take a little bit to recognize him, and and he's downwind. And some dogs then just kind of walk up, and all of a sudden, you know, you can tell immediately when they sense that he's there either through – it's mostly through smell from what I can tell from watching these dogs because I could hardly see him. But, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a separate skill altogether that's taught just like it is in a building search when they're alerting somebody behind a door or anything else. And, you know, I work it in separate phases. Um, and, you know, we do as well. And tracking, you know, like Eric said, you know, it's a separate exercise all and of itself. And it doesn't necessarily have to end with a bite at the end. And like Eric said, the dogs that have had every single bite at the end get all fucking bent out of shape when they end a track and somebody has jumped into a car and taken off. And then they start trying to redirect on backing officers. And they're like, well, fuck, I'm supposed to bite somebody. So who's not, who's stepping up and you create all kinds of problems. Well, just the, to me, the takeaway from every one of these questions is it kind of starts with, it depends, you know, and then, uh, but it also like, you know, you're going to take, you know, each scenario as it comes and, and depending on what the dog is doing, you know, that's always going to drive and dictate how much of something you're using or not using or, or whatever. And there's, there's very few constants, you know, a lot of things are, you know, well, this is happening. Okay. Well, let's, let's uh, redirect with this or, or, you know, condition that cause we're not getting this or, or whatever. And, and it's, it's like a fucking chess game really with everything, but, there's two people always ask me and and part of this podcast they wanted people have been asking for some scenarios and there's two scenarios i'll give them real quick for tracking that i like to do um one of them i just i just did um probably about a month ago so i was told somewhere years ago that the success the percentage of success in a track either with a person or evidence or whatever is about 11 percent. like it's not real high because of vehicles and things like that, um, you know, people being able to get away. Um, so what I do is I'll do a scenario where I have a guy, I'll have him do a track. It's nothing, nothing hard, you know, 
kind of do a track at a toy. And then as they're walking back to the car, I'll have the decoy. Uh, after they start the track, the decoy moves into a spot off the egress path downwind, like in an ambush position, like a, like they doubled back, like the bad guy doubled, which happens all the time, uh, where they doubled back and waiting on an ambush. And the handler's supposed to just walk back with the dog, like back to the car, like we do a thousand times on the street during tracks when you got nothing and you walk back and then watch that, that change of behavior from the dog. And so we do that scenario because at least in my city, it, it happens often. So we did that training and about a week later, one of my guys tracked, a, tried to track a guy and he was kind of given some wrong information, which way the guy went and he was trying, got nothing. He was walking back right when he got to the car, the dog head snapped into the wind and just started going. And he tracked, he dragged him about two or three houses down and found the guy hiding underneath the porch. So those are different tracking scenarios you can use. And one that I haven't done in a long time, and I need to do it too, is so tons of us do tracks and it, all of a sudden the dog seems to be out of it. And we assume that the guy got picked up or he got into a getaway car. So I'll do a track where I have a, a car waiting and I'll have the bad guy walk down and get in the car and drive off. And then so that the handler is tracking, 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 and then can actually get a true picture of when his dog is out. There is no more odor. For sure, the guy has vanished. Um, I haven't done that in a long time. I think I, you know, now I talk about it, I think I will do that. But uh, that's a good one, too, so that you're not guessing. Um, so that you yeah. know. I, I know people that will teach their dogs when they're completely out of odor, turn around and come back and jump on them, which I don't do that, but that's a thing. No, I th yeah, I think, I think it's great. Yeah, I mean, but that kind of goes into this next question that Canine Bass talked about. And it's a long question, but what it comes down to is when you've got strong teams, so you've got a strong team, how do we manipulate scenarios so that they're not so that they're constantly challenged? And I have a pretty good answer for this one. But then also if you've got a ninety mile an hour dog with a thirty mile an hour handler, you know, what do you do? And slap the shit out of him. <laughs> I, I was like some I was like, fuck, I knew that was coming. But sometimes you can't like you like sometimes you get the hand that you're dealt, and that's what you have to do. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, so my take, just very simply, and and I'll I'll I'm happy to turn the specifics over to you, fine gentlemen. But to me, you know, I, I always look at every situation as what is the end product supposed to look like, you know. And to me, there, you know, I I don't think it makes sense to to give a blanket. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this street, you know, quote unquote street scenario. Well, fuck, it depends on what that street looks like. You know, the, the streets in, in bumfuck Kansas look a lot different than south side of Chicago. Uh, you know, so it's, it's you know, what's what are the, the top one or three most likely uh, scenarios in the operational environment that that dog is going to be most consistently in? What do those look like? And then prepare prepare for them. You know, and, and, and to me, that, that should always drive, uh, you know, your, your training scenarios, uh, which is, you know, what, what's the most likely shit that the dog is going to come into. And then uh, the supplemental stuff is just going to augment that. It's things that, that are either pieces of, of, of what that operational environment looks like uh, or they're, they're, you know, supplemental things that, uh, that, that uh, you know, are, are on a regular basis encountered in that operational environment uh, as well. Because obviously, you know, whether it's a macrocosm of, 
military work where it was the dog going to Afghanistan or Iraq or the Horn of Africa or fucking, you know, wherever, like, you know, versus, you know, the dog's going to be going to Southeast Asia or, you know, on the police side, again, it's, you know, is it going to be, you know, a more rural environment or, uh, you know, doing highway stops or is, you know, the dog going to be doing a, a bunch of urban tracking? I mean, to me, there, there's too many operational environments to give a, a, a blanket, quote unquote, real life scenario, um, you know, uh, in terms of, of what, what you're going to use to uh, to do it. Now, having said that, in terms of how, how you're motivating uh, that person, I, I think it's it's the same same premise as the, as the first question, in terms of uh, you know you've got to make it real. You know, is that to me the, the only way you really do that is is to force them to to do it. You know, is to put them uh, no different than you would a, a dog on a on a bite. Is that you're going to put them in a in a in a position where you're putting pressure on them until they fucking respond the way that you want. Uh, you know, and for every person that that may be a little different, but the end end goal and the end result needs to be the same is that, you know, you're if, if they don't want to do it, then motherfucker, I'm going to make you do it. Um, you know, and, and, and it, it, you know, maybe people consider that an oversimplification or we can't do that or whatever. I mean, to me, it, it's it's not the fucking Boy Scouts like you, you either decide, yeah, we're here to to rock and roll and do the fucking man dance or we're not. And uh, and, and somebody else can take their spot. But uh yeah, it's my uh, it's my my. Yeah, that cents. answer that answer kind of bleeds into the next question too, but we'll talk, cover that in just a second, Eric. Oh, yeah. The uh, so the guy who posted that question uh, is one of my guys. Um, his name is Dave, and um, the and the question goes into you know I put them through really you know insane scenarios, but where do you um. Where do you draw the line that you know your strong teams will crush whatever you put in front of them, but get concerned when your mediocre dogs and slug handlers will fuck things up uh, and take a chance at shutting down the dog um, or the the slug handler with the rock star dog? And um, I, I'll I'll answer this. Sometimes I get I get bad about. Admittedly, I'll get I'll get bad about. Uh, I'll create a scenario. My scenarios are oftentimes pretty insane. But I'll create a scenario, and I don't modify it as much um, for each dog, which I probably should. There are dogs that that um, don't work for my agency that that have some issues on some things, and I should probably. And sometimes I do. I'll have to handle it a little bit differently. But I'll tell you this: I don't take one lick of consideration of the handler when I'm making scenarios. Not a single bit of their concern i don't care that they don't like to jump up on stuff themselves or crawl under stuff or go around i don't give a shit so mediocre or not you better get your fucking ass in there and partner up with your dog now where i need to make more concern in the scenarios is for each individual dog because i know these dogs we have 40 dogs that come to me but i know them all pretty intimately so I need to. I do need to switch it up a little bit. Maybe modify some things because maybe a dog is not as strong on this flooring as this dog is, or maybe it's not as strong in the dark room as this is. And there's sometimes we do that, but I don't give a shit what the handler has to think. Yeah, and you know that this is going to kind of bleed into the next question. Like I said a minute ago, um, which I'll just kind of answer both at the same time. Um, this next question says uh, it's from. ADMK 
underscore 13 and Patrick no out, which I really like <laughs> on Facebook. Um, you know, they're like, if you have one scenario to get a new, to get a dog street ready or whatever else. And there's several that, that we do or it is to build the handler's confidence in the dog and everything else, you know, and there's a couple that I do that, um, I think really, 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 um, kind of magnify how they work. One is that, that crazy ass dead check one that we do where it's like an ambush. And the other one is what I call the handler drum circle. Um, we did it in Florida and I do it here and I do it every, every one of these and that I do this high risk deployment. We do it in where it's a super, super loud environment. And I also do this one for guys that are dead set on verbal outs and the dog is always going to fucking out and all this other stuff, which is a whole other conversation. But basically you got six handlers or four handlers there and we are making as much noise as possible. And a decoy is actively resisting us. And then he literally walks in and plugs the dog on. I mean, it's, it's the easiest bite in the world. The dog guy walks into the room, plugs the dog on handle The decoy keeps moving, keeps moving, keeps moving, even through the out procedure everybody makes noise all the handlers make noise and we're banging shit on the ground it's super fucking loud it's loud enough that when we go to out i have to either give the handler a visual cue or have to walk up and tap them on the shoulder to out and i mean they can yell all the fuck they want but the dog is not coming off from a verbal because he can't fucking hear so and it's super stressful for the dog we did this one in florida last weekend and there was a super super fucking strong dog there from a department in florida and this dog, so, you know, we talk about that mythic fucking fight drive. And, you know, they have two responses. They can either bounce or they can they can dig in. This dog was biting so hard his fucking eyeballs were bloodshot and he blew his glands. And it was a straight-up stress reaction. It was a stressful, stressful, stressful fucking bite for this dog. And that was the first one. The handler takes him off with a brake stick and immediately backs him up and we keep going and he puts him back on and that motherfucker bit like Carlos owed him money and the dog continued. Maybe he did. He was, he was, that dog was biting so hard. His eyes were crossed. And you know, I mean, you know, the, people are like, Oh, it's a weak dog. It's because he blew his glands. No, that dog, it was a straight out stress response. And in hindsight, you look at that exercise and you just watch it on video. It's like, okay, you're just banging a bunch of shit around and making noise and everything else. And it was an extremely stressful bite for that dog and for all the other dogs. And compared to all the other shit they'd been through for the last three days of getting shot at and thrown through fucking drywall and everything else that we did to them, you know, that should have been like you walk in to an active decoy because we did a ton of passive stuff and you literally plug him on. I mean, it's the simplest bite. And it's funny because... There was a live bite on, or well, what should have been a live bite on some live police show at, at, at a specific apartment, and they tried, they threw a dog in some dude's lap, and he just kind of sat there, and it was a, it was almost an identical scenario, and that's one where handlers, it's super stressful because they feel like they don't have control, it's super stressful for the dog because they can't hear the handler, it's super loud, there's other people around, the decoy's not sitting still, and it, it, it really, 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 really fucks with dogs. I'll tell you this too. One of the best ways to motivate handlers at a training day is peer pressure. Um, I, I listen. You can blanket party him for all I care. 
I'm I'm setting up scenarios. I don't give a shit what you guys do to them. But it's uh, you know, not pulling your weight, not getting there with your dog, and not doing that. It's unacceptable. So, all right, that was that's my rant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, I'll just refer to my first answer: slap the shit out. No, I'm kidding. The uh, <laughs> you know, to me, the I mean, with a handle like uh, no out, I'm going to say you know, the best best scenario you can do is out your dog, right? Um, being a smart ass the uh right. <laughs> you know to me the over, overcoming the biggest challenge um you know or, or i guess you know it's asking what scenarios uh i mean to me again it, it depends on what what's troubling the dog i do like uh you know the the you know you've got to be able to out the dog if the dog can't hear you you've got to be able to out the dog when the when the decoy is active or if they're passive or if they're you know elevated or if they're uh you know underground i mean there's you know, to me, the the more the more things you throw at them, so that the dog has a seen it before and b since been successful doing it. Uh, you know, the the more prepared that dog is going to be for whatever the fuck he comes into. Which Jesus Christ, you never know. Uh, you know, and so to me, being as as varied as possible in terms of of what those scenarios are, um, you know, really really make a big difference in, in whether or not the dog is, is successful or not. And, and the more things that he's seen and uh, had his confidence built around and over uh, is just going to, going to better prepare him for, for all of that. Yeah, totally. All right, we got one more question, Ted. Um, yeah, that was kind of the last one. It was, you know, what scenario do we do to build the confidence, the handler's confidence? And that was like kind of the last, the last two kind of bled together. So, um, so, you know, oh yeah, you mentioned a specific one though. Yeah. He, well, he asked me, uh, could you pick just one of the best scenario for a new dog going out on the street? And then he says, uh, ask me specifically, what type of scenarios do you do to build a new handler's confidence in your partner? Well, I do. I do a ton of them. One of the one of the scenarios where I find the guys are just super charged up and jacked up with their dogs is when we do a traffic stop scenario where the um, driver is in, you know, refusing to come out, and we put the dog in through either the passenger window or the driver window, but passenger window makes it a little bit safer. Um, or, or where the dog actually has to get in. And they watch their dog launch into this car, SUV preferably, so they have to really jump up, launch in through the window of this car, and then just start taking the fight to this dude in this car. So you have, like, several things going on here. You have a tight, confined space. You have all the noise the guy's making. You have to jump through the window. The, uh, you know, the, the handler's not in there with them and all kinds of stuff. That's one of those scenarios that that I think plays pays a bunch of dividends when the and the uh, the handlers get a huge broner out of it. Man, they're like, oh, this is the the best freaking thing I've ever seen. And a week later, two weeks later, they end up in a scenario like that on the street. Those are, I mean, I do a ton of different things, but that's one off the top of my head that I can think of that incorporates two, three, four different things, and your handler will just be beside himself. Yeah, car sins are tough. I mean, you got to teach open window. You got to teach them to not just check the seat. You'd be most handlers are surprised that when they do that with an open door, if you have a decoy sitting there and then you move them to the back seat and they run up and they'll nuke the seat of the driver's side and they'll every single fucking dog will bite the seat 
in the vehicle and they'll be like, oh, shit, there's nobody there. And then teaching them to go into the vehicle in case you've got three people in a vehicle and the driver and the passengers had to get out. And then the guy in the backseat's like, man, eh, not today. I'm not going to get out. So, you know, teaching them that, you know, it's like a tiny building. But then you're like you said, you've got confined space. If the dog wants to get away, they can't. You know, then they, it, there's any number of dangerous aspects to it. And then there's the whole going through an open window, going through a window, the handler is just broken. There's any number of permutations that happen. And, you know, that's a textbook use of a dog on most use of force continuums for most departments is that's a pretty safe bet that you're going to have to do that at some point as a handler. Yeah. Well, by the way, I use my personal vehicle for that one time and uh yeah i, I yeah, fuck my that. seat is no. held together by duct tape yeah no pass i'm out yeah, no my no, no leck took a bite out of my like this <laughs> i mean like a perfect like an ice cream scoop out of the fucking door handle of my of my old car yeah pass i'm out on that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's awesome yeah so, uh, you since we talked to you last time, Mike, you've been pretty fucking busy, man. You got a new podcast and you've released a new supplement stuff for dogs, right? I have, yep. So the with the podcast, it's more uh, kind of general purpose. Like, uh, you know, for me, I I've been on a lot of different podcasts over the years, and and uh, you know, for for me, because of my um you know i guess relationships in the industry and in that being kind of the professional hat if you will not that i've kept it that professional on this podcast but uh <clears throat> you know to me i, I Close wanted enough. two things yeah two things I, I was looking to accomplish was one an outlet for for me to really just voice you know uh both the shit that i'm interested in uh and topics that are relevant you know for the mainstream I mean, it's politics it's health and nutrition it's it's you name it. I mean, obviously there'll be some dog specific ones also, but it's, it's just all kind of all the shit that I'm into, uh, you know, the interesting people that I, that I come in contact with in all facets of my life and bringing them on and letting them share their story, but also giving them a platform to just be themselves and swear and tell dirty jokes and, and, uh, you know, voice their non-politically correct fucking opinions about whatever it is that they want to talk about, uh, and then go that route with it. So, um, that's kind of the, the gist of the of the podcast, which is a mic drop, which uh, I think the first episode will be releasing probably next week. But again, it's and it's, it's spelled M I anything. It's spelled M I K E. M I K E. Right. Yeah. Yep. We'll play on words like a like a dipshit. But uh, <laughs> and then the the in, in terms the uh, in terms of the supplement lines, the the first one it's just uh, if you want to check it out, it's trichosupplements.com. But it's the first one we did is CBD oil, which uh, some people tend to uh, even in today's day and age have kind of a stigma attached to it, even though, you know, it's, it's not, it doesn't have THC in it. It's legal in all 50 States. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it does not get you high. A lot of people are like, wait a minute, it's made from hemp. What the fuck? You know, but it, it, uh, you know, it, it's something that, that I've researched for, for a couple of years now. And I've tried both on myself and a number of dogs, uh, both retired dogs, uh, you know, spastic dogs that, that were younger, that were just, you know, kind of a pain in the dick to deal with. And everything in between, dogs with cancer, dogs with you know, bone problems, and then again, uh, even even taking it myself, um, and uh, and have have really gotten behind it as something that uh, that I have found to, to have a lot of success with, and uh, you know, so it's it's something that um, you know is is kind of broad spectrum in terms of helping with cognition and and joint pain and inflammation, uh, and and you know also helping with. 
uh, with different uh, ailments that that uh, tend to plague from a from a chronic nature that uh, that's that's helped out quite a bit. And uh, I can tell you this: I mean, you know, for anything, anybody that knows me and, and knows the products that I recommend or whatever, like I don't give a shit who offers what. If if I don't use it and believe in it and and really stand behind it, I, I won't even mention it, let alone fucking recommend it. Um, you know, much less start a, a, a business venture that, uh, you know, that, that actually provides it. So, uh, I've, I've put this stuff through the paces and, and in terms of, of the manufacturer that makes it, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's all organic. Um, and it, it comes from a, um, you know, basically a, a facility that, that does food grade, um, you know, type, type of, um, uh, you know their their facilities are are of a food grade nature. So, um, and it's one of the things. I mean, I won't get too in the weeds on on oils across the board, but the, the two main components are are either isolates uh, or or not. And uh, you know the the best way I can I can describe it is is an isolate is kind of like uh, like from concentrate. Uh, you know, if you're if you have orange juice as an example, an isolate is is for constant from concentrate, whereas a full spectrum oil, which is the Trichos version, uh, is not. It's like the fresh squeeze. It's it's complete. It has a lot of the things that the isolates don't have. Uh, the isolates are typically typically a little cheaper, um, and the full spectrums are uh, are generally a little more expensive because they're volume wise. Uh, you know, more, more lengthy in terms of processing, et cetera. But, um, it, it just, it does a lot for, uh, for a lot of different things. I encourage you to check out, uh, you know, the trico supplements.com. There's a third party lab test. If you want to see the, uh, you know, the breakdown of, of what all's in it and, and how it, it stacks up to any other brand that's out there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I love it. Like I said, I, I take it myself every day and, and uh, definitely notice a difference. For me, the two biggest things I notice personally are, are joint function and cognition. Uh, you know, that that's for me personally. But uh, with dogs, like I said, I've seen dogs that, that had cancer that helped, you know, bring their tumors down. I've, I've seen them that uh, helped their, their joint mobility uh, noticeably, uh, some that in terms of not being able to focus as much during training that, that, that they had better focus uh, the stuff that we have is uh, it's chicken flavored, uh, and we have 200 milligram and soon to have 500 milligram bottles coming out. But um, you know the way I like to do it is either take a, a small piece of stale bread or like a crouton and and do that, or just drop it right in their mouth if you've got a dog that uh, that will do that and not spaz out, fucking spit it out and all that. But uh, kind of like Ted every time Alicia tries to kiss her. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it. God damn it. But, uh, Anyway, uh, yeah, like I said, I encourage you to check it out. And the one last thing in terms of the the website stuff, just microland.com, the Team Dog Online Training, we launched an affiliate program where uh, you can can basically uh, earn $10, and and all of the the specifics are on there, but you can can earn $10 for every subscription that you get somebody else to sign up, and there's bonuses and and all that stuff. And and we completely revamped the entire – the team dog online training component of the community rather to where it's, it's basically like Facebook now where it's, it, it is a community. Like you can message each other and set up groups and, and post status updates and, and all sorts of shit. It's, it's actually pretty, pretty fucking cool. So uh, we'll be launching a, uh, an app with it. Uh, that'll be a mobile version, just like you'd check Facebook. You can get on there and, and be checking it the same way here before too long. So uh, I encourage everybody to, to check that shit out. 
Excellent, excellent. Um, Eric, what do you got going on? Well, I managed to take uh, my computer, the microphone, and my headphones upstairs and make a drink. And you never knew it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's about what I'm up to. Um, I got my, you know, my normal day job where I'm training dogs and, uh, I don't, uh, on the Van S side, I don't don't really have anything going on at the moment. Um, we'll see. I don't know. My, my whole thing for this entire podcast, and I I say this to guys all the time when we're talking about training and training scenarios, if you're the trainer or if you're a handler that wants to kind of lead the, the group, never, ever, ever be outworked ever. Don't expect your guys to crawl under the the dingy stage in the school full of fucking spiders and everything if you're not going to do it first. Always, always be working. If you're sitting in the back bullshitting and talking and you are just like, go do this and go do that, you should expect mediocrity out of your guys. So that's the only thing I can uh, really add to to everything. Ted, how about you? Uh, I'm just glad I've been home eight days since January 4th. So uh, I'm stoked to be here <laughs> and back, and I can finally fucking finish some of these dogs we got. I got some bed bug dogs. I got an explosives dog. Uh, we got a bunch of patrol dogs that we're finishing, and tomorrow it was like fucking bite work, like on steroids all day. And then we got to go to a hotel for these bed bug dogs. So uh, I am ecstatic to be back home, and I don't have to go anywhere. Um, Alicia's heading up to. Uh, Gettysburg to see the tripwire kids next month, uh, for some stuff that's going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than that, I'm just, I'm glad to be back. So <laughs> yeah, yeah sure. that's good. That's speaking of trip, yeah. speaking of tripwire, Ryan posted on Facebook today that he was in Cambridge, Ohio. Ryan, that is an hour away from me. If you're going to uh, be here, let me know. I like lunch. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'll drive an hour for lunch. Man, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. Up. Yeah. You're calling him out. I am. Love it. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I, this episode is going to air after the Bravo Three thing, but those guys have a have the Bravo Three deal going on next year in Daytona Beach, which is going to be good. So, uh, but yeah, I think uh, that pretty much closes this episode up. Working Dog Radio is edited and co-produced by Dustin Wright at Bracket Designs. Be sure to hit him up at BracketDesigns.com for any branding or content-related work you have. We were graciously granted permission to use this rad music by Brother Deeg. Go buy him a beer at Brother Deeg, spelled D-E-G-E, dot blogspot, dot com, spelled D-E-G-E, or hit him up on iTunes, Amazon, CD Baby, or any other music streaming stores. Check the show notes for links to both of these creative geniuses.